Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we revisit each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums. We take a couple of weeks to listen back to each of them and then we get together to have a good old chat about them. This time we're on episode 18, which brings us to Desire, released in January 1976. So hello again, Rich. Uh, hello. Good to see you. As uh, as usual, we'll kick off with a little stroll down memory lane. How familiar were you with Desire before we came back to it this time? This is one that I was very familiar with, actually. I mean, I realise there's kind of an ongoing theme here where you ask me this question. I say, well, I, I kind of listened to it and uh, and I'd always classed myself as a Bob Dylan fan and then realised I knew virtually nothing about some of these records. But this one... I listened to a lot. This main reason was that it was in the library. So um, a lot of people talk about the kind of holy trinity. They talk about Highway 61, bringing it all back home and Blonde on Blonde, that kind of mid-60s trilogy. And I know we talked about a kind of alternative trilogy at the end of last uh, podcast. I think for me, though, the uh, holy trinity of Bob Dylan albums is Highway 61, Desire, and under the red sky and the reason for that and not many people would put those as a holy trinity was because those were the three bob dylan albums that happened to be stocked by the king's lynn public uh, library in the year well 1990 something so there we go i uh, loved this album i actually thought i mean this is going off already on a tangent that it had been mispackaged because bob dylan looks so kind of central slash south american on the cover picture of this i thought that they'd kind of just shoved it in a random cd kind of cover um because it was photocopied as well i think like color photocopied like they used to do in those films <laughs> and i just thought it was a kind of um you know they'd, they'd whacked it in this sleeve that was for like a mariachi band or something like that and um and so i i think i was probably a very very confused listener but i absolutely adored it and i still do and it's been really really nice to to revisit this but it still stands up there with my favorites really so yeah i don't think many people will bracket it in the uh, alongside under the red sky as a kind of holy trinity but there you go that's my take on it what's your story with it mark just well before i get into that just on the cover yeah i guess we are of the generation that experienced these records on cassette or cd so we had tiny little covers to, to work with didn't we well yeah that is true and but covers were still nonetheless very very important i mean one of i i bought the album dookie by green day solely based on the quality of the cover and that is one of the great punk albums i still think i mean i know it's quite commercial in the world of punk but i bought it purely because the cover looked really good and really interesting and so i think yeah they were quite small on the uh, on tape, certainly, but I think covers still mattered. Uh, now, with a thumbnail on Spotify or whatever, <laughs> that that sort of boat has sailed, really. <laughs> like like so many of us, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, this was one of the very early ones that I listened to too. Um, I, I've said a few times that Blood on the Tracks and Highway 61 were the first ones I listened to. I think Blonde on Blonde might have been next. This would have been around the same time certainly within the first year of me um, discovering Bob Dylan. And the other thing I, I was reflecting back on was that I would have definitely have heard this before Time Out of Mind came out. So, you know, early, mid-90s. And so I was still very much in the mindset of discovering Bob Dylan in, in the way that um, I was discovering the Beatles 
it was almost like a, an archaeological exercise. I wasn't treating this guy as somebody who was vital or important to the music scene that I was experiencing in my sort of normal everyday life with my friends. This was something, you know, uh, where I was going into dark and dusty back rooms of libraries and uh, copying these uh, these horribly photocopied CD covers, as you, uh, as, you, as you described. So, yeah, at that time, before Dylan sort of re-emerged into the, the popular culture, I think the impression I got quite strongly was that there was this this Bob Dylan canon, which was the the three sixties records, blood on the tracks, and then probably freewheeling and the times we are a changing, or certainly, you know, the classic folk songs that he'd uh, he'd made his reputation with. And so this one was the first one I'd come to probably that was outside of that canon. And so it felt like I was discovering something for myself in a in a very weird way because obviously I now know that the album's extremely uh, famous. But at that time, it did feel like something a little bit off the beaten track. Um, and yeah, I enjoyed it very much at the time. And as I think I said last time, it's been one of the ones that I've come back to again and again over the years. So yeah, certainly one of the ones that I've, I've been engaged with right from the start of, of my uh, Bob Dylan listening career. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that about Bob Dylan and the idea about him not being a, a vital artist at the time when you were discovering this, because I think that's totally true. I mean, it would have been pretty time out of mind that I heard this. And I seem to remember a lot of conversations with people, older people, saying things like, oh, yeah, Bob Dylan, oh, I used to like him. Or it was always past tense, wasn't it? Or, oh, he's lost it a bit now, though, hasn't he? And I think that they just thought that was it. He was washed up and gone kind of thing, which, as we know now, I mean, he he barely reached sort of mid-career point, had he? Yeah, and, and has gone on to release all this incredible music. But yeah, I think there was a sense that that was, it, he was a, he was yesterday's man, really. You know, much like the sort of Jose Mourinho's uh, managerial kind of coaching strategies, et cetera, et cetera. Although I suppose the Europa Conference League uh, victory notwithstanding. But there we go. I've, I've gone already off on a ludicrous kind of uh, blind. Well, alley. mate, I'm just, the, the spectre you've raised there of another 25 years of Jose Mourinho teams dominating Europe is just too horrendous to contemplate. So I'll I'll leave it there. It's going to be like the second coming. It'll be his time out of mind. It'll be him lifting that trophy again. <laughs> I just dread to think what's going to happen with the Christmas album or indeed the uh, the American standards. Like the <laughs> we should talk about the background, mate. We should talk about the. Background. Let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. So um, yeah, well, I guess. The thing about this record is it does come out of a very specific moment in Dylan's career, doesn't it? So we just talked about the basement tapes in our last episode uh, that had come out in 75. Well, that summer of 75, when the basement tapes came out, Dylan was on a real high um, in terms of his, his professional career anyway. Basement tapes have been very well received. It was only six months since Blood on the Tracks, which even at the time had been recognised as a, as a return to form in the, the cliched uh, expression. And of course, he was still basically coming off the back of Tour 74, which had been this massive commercial success as well. So although I don't think it's quite right to say that he was back at the centre of the zeitgeist as he had been in the mid-60s, he was he was probably as close to it as he, as he ever had been since. Certainly very, very much a, a vital part of the scene at that time. And he was very active in the scene, wasn't he? He was, that summer, he was around New York. He was attending events he was popping up on stage he was revisiting some of the folk clubs some of the new clubs um hanging out with people like patty smith and it was from and some of the old people from the 60s as well were we were still active so it was from that milieu that we ended up getting the rolling thunder tour of course that we'll we'll talk about next time and i think you get some 
some sense of the, the excitement of that time at the start of a Martin Scorsese film, don't you? When, uh, I, I guess it starts really with the rehearsals, but you see some of the scenes in the clubs and things. And uh, that was, for, that was for the, the background, I guess, that this album came out of. But there were a couple of specific things that really led on to it being created in the way that it was, weren't there? There were. And I mean, I think when you talk about him being back out in on the scene, as it were, I think there's that temptation, isn't there, to think that when he had the motorcycle crash in Woodstock, that he kind of disappeared. And I mean, he did disappear for a while, but it's almost this sense that he disappeared and that was that kind of thing. And he became this elusive sort of figure and never really emerged again. And I think particularly discovering this at the time that I did when he was that elusive figure I think it's tempting to think that but he was I mean he was yeah he was a proper kind of man about town really wasn't he at this moment in time and of course he was that kind of raconteur like figure when he first went to New York and I mean I think there's, there's he's not sort of lost that really I think he's just got older he's kind of retained that and obviously it must be very very difficult being Bob Dylan but there are plenty of people who suggest that he's quite normal he's quite a sort of in his own way a sociable kind of figure it's just that at certain points in his career it's difficult to kind of think that that's the truth but yeah definitely in, in this instance he's I mean, he's very contemporary, isn't he? I guess if he's hanging around with Patti Smith, he's going in sort of CBGBs and clubs like that. And there was a hell of a lot happening in, in New York, particularly at this point in time. I mean, it was similar, really, to the, the kind of the emergence of the punk scene in London. A, a lot of it was kind of socioeconomic. You had the kind of flight from the inner cities and there was an awful lot of therefore kind of squatting and cheap housing and loft space and things like that available and so and and of course it was edgy and it was dangerous and uh that's what kind of the urban sort of cities had become i mean new york at this point in time was kind of almost verging on the on, on bankruptcy i think i'm i'm right in 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 thinking so yeah, I mean, he's kind of plunged into the middle of all of that. And I think it would have been quite edgy, but massively inspirational. I think that the fact that he's hanging around with these kind of more contemporary characters, that comes through, doesn't it? It gives it something else that we probably haven't seen since the kind of early mid-60s, really. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to what extent that was a kind of a conscious thing to try to reignite his creativity. I don't know the answer to that, but I think you're right. And it's very striking with this record, but it does, it, it flows out of that energy, um, which surely must have been, at least in part, created by the, the scene he was in. Because everything about it is spontaneous, energetic. You know, the, the way in which the songs were written, of course, we, we know, for example, that he had been writing um, in 75. We've got stuff like Abandoned Love and uh, One More Cup of Coffee on the, the record, which he'd, he'd already written before that summer or at the start of the summer. But then, of course, this record really comes out of his collaboration with uh, Jacques Levy, doesn't it? And I think that the entire time period from him, him meeting Jacques up to the album being recorded is about three or four weeks. So there was a real kind of creative rush that led to those recording sessions at the end of July 75, wasn't there? There was, in the, yeah, I mean, like, and Jack Levy's influence, I mean, it's really interesting. I'm sorry, the, the bloke next door to me is t- taking down scaffolding at the moment. If that bleeds into the recording, I apologise to anyone listening out there. Should be okay, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, the Jack Levy influence on this is really interesting, I think, because this it sort of sounds like a Bob Dylan record that doesn't quite sound like a Bob Dylan record. And I think, I guess... 
his influence has got to have quite a lot to do with that, really, hasn't it? But I mean, I love Bob Dylan as a songwriter, and these there's nothing about the songs on this that don't sound Bob Dylan-y. There's a lot of lyricism. There's an awful lot of kind of storytelling and stuff like that. But I think maybe the kind of cohesion. I mean, this is definitely sounds like an album, doesn't it? It sounds like a, a group of songs which really work together. I know that Blood on the Tracks did as well, but I just wonder if if maybe Levy's kind of um, Levy Levy. I, I'm not sure whether I'm saying either one of them right, but never mind. Uh, we no, I know what you mean. His collaborator. Um, yes. Has um has maybe kind of tightened things up a little bit. And sometimes it's good, isn't it, to have a sounding board like that to kind of, to sort of, I suppose, increase the focus, really. Yeah, and it's interesting to speculate, isn't it, what, what would have happened had he not started that collaboration. So, as I say, we do know that he'd, he'd written songs which were on the record. So it's not as though he was going through a, one of his droughts and that he was going to just fall off the radar completely. Presumably something would have come up. And, of course, famously... Abandoned Love, among other songs, was left off the record, um, despite being probably one of his greatest songs. So, you know, we do know that, that there was something else going on that could have, could have, could, things could have gone in a very different direction, certainly. Yeah. But I think you're right. The influence of that collaboration did lead the album to go in a different direction. And that, that's where we ended up. And it's not just the songwriting either, is it? There was, there was a lot of change in the recording process as well. So famously, originally, um, there were lots and lots of musicians involved when we were trying to put these songs down, but things didn't quite work out, did they? No, and I mean, they. I think I'm right in saying they kind of cut the band down. They sort of stripped down uh, the amount of people that were in the studio, and it's Romance in Durango that I think remains from the, the big band period, as it were. But you've got the very fact that Emmy Lou Harris is there and it's Scarlett Rivera, isn't it? The, uh, the the violin player. And and what I love about this as well is is and we've talked a little bit about this. Bob Dylan didn't necessarily go, I don't think, into the studio to make an album. He went into the studio to capture the sound on a particular day. We've we've mentioned this before. We've said that at other times his records, if he'd gone in on a different day, might have turned out completely differently. And what you are doing here or what the production team are doing is basically capturing lightning in a bottle. I mean, this is just an astonishing kind of performance, like vocally, ensemble playing, instrumentally, everything about this, I think. And it's very quick, as you said. And so I think that they totally made the right decision to strip down that big band sound. Yeah, and if uh, any listeners are playing bingo, this is where we throw you a bone and we'll mention, uh, is it rolling, Bob? So there was a fantastic episode a few months ago now, wasn't there, with Rob Stoner, who plays bass on on this record, where he describes the entire recording process. It's own idiosyncratic take on it, for sure, but it's a fascinating listen if anyone hasn't heard it. Probably worth just summarising quickly, isn't it, that there were all these musicians, things weren't going quite so well. So they cut it down to, who was it? It was uh, Rob and Emmylou and Bob and Scarlett. And was it Rob's mate, basically, on drums who uh, completed the lineup? I think it might have been, yeah, because, I mean, he was tasked with putting the band together, wasn't he? And also, that's a difficult kind of uh, role to play anyway, but I think it's very, very difficult when at the same time 
you've got to keep Bob happy. And I think on any given day, what Bob Dylan might have liked or might not have liked would have been a kind of guessing game, wouldn't it? He'd have been treading on eggshells. So, um, so he, I think, had to try and figure out what it was that Dylan was after and then put the right personnel in place. But I mean, it, it's, I can't think of many ways that I would improve the playing on this. I don't think there's anything else that I would add. I mean, it certainly didn't need any big electric guitar solos in the, uh, which of course in 76 we're still sort of on the I know that punk was kind of emergent but we're very much stadium rock aren't we at this point Mm. in time and and this does not sound like a stadium rock record I know that it was kind of played in big venues when they took it out on the road but even then you're not seeing something like uh, Foghat or Zeppelin (laughs) (laughs) no Absolutely. And there's parallels, aren't there, with those famous Highway 61 recording sessions as well. Like, you know, the idea of uh, Al Cooper just suddenly rocking up and turning on the organ. And you've got that kind of vibe here, haven't you? The Is it is it one more cup of coffee that starts so tentatively and then the, uh, the bass comes in and the violin just sort of starts drifting in? Yeah. And I think Bob had played with Scarlett, hadn't he, prior to those sessions. So she must have had some idea where things were going. But it's still this kind of organic process, isn't it, where we're almost feeling the way into the songs. And nevertheless, it's just cohesing in that incredibly alchemical way, in the same way that a very different band worked on Highway 61, and quite differently from those very polished Nashville performances that he'd done in the interim. So, yeah, we're very much in that space, and it's part of the self mythologization of rock and roll isn't it that we we like to think of these things just coming together so um spontaneously but there's some truth in it i think in this record for sure i think so i think so it's i mean i i think particularly the the bass playing is so melodic on this as well it almost i mean but but again it's not kind of it's not wildly complicated it's just this kind of for the sake of the song isn't it and there is there's a there's a sort of almost busking quality to some of this but I mean, I think it just shows the quality of musicianship that it it, it sounds fully realised, doesn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, do we want to get on to talking about some of the uh, songs now, Mark, or have we got anything else that we're, uh, that we're thinking? No, I think we can. I mean, I suppose we probably should just flag that, of course, this album came out in, in 76, and, you know, we're talking about the recording taking place in summer 75. So what happened in the interim, of course, was that, the Rolling Thunder tour got underway. And of course, we'll, we'll talk about the song Hurricane. That was re-recorded in the October while the rehearsals for the Rolling Thunder were going on. So it wasn't like everything was, was in the can at the end of July. But it was a very, it was it was, it was a record that, that was almost fully realised at that time. And the finishing touches we started a little bit later. And it came out in the middle of the Rolling Thunder, which we'll talk about next time. So again, we're almost back into that kind of 60s gallop of creative process with Dylan here. And we're going to fall off that train quite quickly after this um but yeah let's let's get into the songs i mean do you want to you want to kick off with hurricane which i think we should kick off with hurricane yeah i mean this i mean i remember the oh god what's his name uh the anthony scaduto um in his book he talks about how this was a you know kind of a radio hit at the time and this kind of won him a lot of new fans really because of course there were plenty of people who hadn't listened to Bob Dylan in the 60s who might not have been a, even of listening age kind of thing in the 60s who suddenly were listening to this and thinking well who's this guy I want to check him out I mean I love it I love it the kind of anthemic chorus 
the civil rights aspect to it, the story behind it, the film based on uh, about it's Ruben Carter, Ruben Hurricane Carter is really really good as well. And I mean, essentially, the he was framed. It's one of those sort of civil rights era protest kind of Bob Dylan songs, but just kind of turbocharged really and brought up to the uh, into the modern era, I suppose, when it was released. Obviously. I think if we, when we talked about Hattie Carroll, we discussed the fact that Bob was relatively, well, in places, shall we say, a little bit liberal with the his <laughs> truth. And I think that there were aspects when it comes to this song as well. But I mean, my goodness, it is a hell of a song. And it's just, this is like a call to arms, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The parallels with Hattie Carroll are... Uh are really striking, aren't they? I think the thing that links them together, apart from the the obvious narrative structure, the way that they, they delineate this miscarriage of justice and the fact that they're connected tangentially in the case of Hurricane, but very directly in Hattie Carroll to civil rights. The thing that ties them together is the controlled righteousness and the, the, well, well, let's say the righteousness, but the controlled rage with which that righteousness is delivered throughout the, the verses and the way the verses stack on top of each other to just drive home that that sense of, uh, of outrage. And they both do it incredibly effectively in very different ways, of course. But yes, you're quite, you're quite right. The, 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 um, the truth uh, is a casualty of the, uh, the, the artistic process in this, in this case, I think it's fair to say. And just like with Hattie Carroll, you can, you can spend a few hours on Google investigating that if you're so inclined. So well, yeah, I mean, and but this thing, this is like a running thing, isn't it? Because I mean, he did, he does this with Joey, which we'll talk about later on. But it doesn't make it any less effective, I don't think. In the case of this one, it doesn't make it any less believable. And certainly, as a, I don't know, what would I mean, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years of age, whatever it might have been, I wasn't thinking, oh, is this you know, accurate? I was thinking, what a great song, and I was kind of empathizing with this sense of rage i mean you've got lines in it like reuben carter was falsely tried i mean that in itself is like bam where you, you throw in those out there and there's there's plenty of other lines which just kind of leap out i mean you're right it, and it builds and it builds and it's um i think it's tremendously powerful and and, and again it's the playing it's the singing it's the whole kind of picture here which just gives it this massive energy and yeah which i is, is sadly lacking in the case i mean i take a breath there running out of words <laughs> <laughs> to, to kind of do it justice really and <laughs> no you're quite right it does have that cumulative effect that's so impressive and that line you've just mentioned when he sort of breaks cover and declaims Reuben Carter was falsely tried it's it's a real shiver down the spine moment isn't it definitely yeah I can't remember where I read this now. It was years ago, but I think it might have been in the context of U2, actually, and, and Bono doing some dubious political machinations from a stage. But somebody was saying that the, the thing about 20th century, one of the key things about it is the development of electrical amplification and the way that one figure, whether that be a, a politician or a rock star, can command tens of thousands of people and have them all laser focused on a simple idea. And that can be so powerful and so dangerous of course and so sinister in some ways and there are people who would say that what Dylan is doing with things like Hattie Carroll and, and Hurricane is quite sinister I wouldn't be one of them I, I, I'm in your camp I think I think that uh, he's on the side of the angels here and it's valid from that point of view but I do appreciate that's a subjective position to take but yeah it's it's that 
it's that kind of call to arms, isn't it? And the, the way in which you can really believe that something like this can start a revolution and can start a process that has a real impact on the world. You, you believe it when you hear it, even hearing it decades after the fact, when you know that, in fact, you know, the end result of this was that the, the retrial happened and uh, Carter was, was found guilty again. And it would be it would be decades until he was eventually acquitted. Nevertheless, the, the power of the song and its obvious influence on the culture is, is undiluted. I totally agree. And I mean, when I was a kid listening to this, I wasn't, as I've said, thinking about the realities of the uh, of the case itself. I was thinking about his rage and I was thinking about, you know, wanting to kind of march alongside and kind of cry out about against injustice and things like that. And that that is the power of a song, isn't it, really, that it can do that decades after when it was first released, when someone is coming to it as a listener with no real context but still able to kind of feel that anger and, and, and be moved by it, be affected by it. And I think that's so, so important. Well, yeah, just to wrap up that discussion about the veracity of the lyrics, probably worth pointing out that that's why Hurricane was re-recorded in October, wasn't it? can't remember now if, if he'd actually been sued by the time he re-recorded it or if that followed later, but certainly the studio were very, very, very concerned about legal implications so it had to be re-recorded after the July sessions so it was uh, in October but I wanted to pick up on a couple of things you were talking about with respect to Hurricane so one of them just on the the impact on the culture it features on the soundtrack to um, one of my favourite films probably which is Dazed and Confused from Richard Linklater and the soundtrack to that is uh, it's marvellous. The film's from the 90s, but it's set in um, the mid-70s and it's the last day of high school, for a, or the last day of middle school for a bunch of kids uh, who are going into high school. And yeah, you've got stuff like Leonard Skinner, Deep Purple, Alice Cooper, but Hurricane's on there as well. And I think that just situates it really nicely in the kind of milieu it was, it was floating around it. But the last thing I wanted to mention was, um, you know, even at the time, I think Joni Mitchell quite famously was very sceptical of the whole... Uh, hurricane campaign wasn't she so this kind of tension between the, the sort of the righteousness the the bandwagon that was going on with uh, trying to fight for Reuben Carter's release and the sort of the sketchy relationship with the truth I suppose that some of that implied even at the time it was something that was picked up on by a lot of people and even some of the people involved in Rolling Thunder weren't necessarily fully on board I suppose now decades later with the final outcome of the trial we can be a little bit more sanguine about it but yeah just worth remembering that even at the time it wasn't it wasn't something that everybody was entirely on board with. No, and obviously there's a, a number of trials that have to take place between release and between where we're at now, really, in order for that to happen. So it was uh, it was something of a hot potato, wasn't it, really, at this at this moment in time? But um, yeah, it doesn't take. I don't think that takes anything away from the power of the song. But yeah, I can I can imagine, and I can totally understand why they're in the context of the time. There were people who weren't quite so on board as. Uh, as we might be now. All right then, ISIS. ISIS, what are we reckoning? Now, just before we get into ISIS, mate, obviously this is entitled Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. This is an album which I found it probably more difficult to insert, should we say, links with the immortal bard. The only one that I could suggest for this is the <laughs> somewhat vague links with uh, Antony and Cleopatra, Egypt, etc., etc. Maybe we could kind of tie it in with the idea of uh, the kind of morality plays that Shakespeare would have been very uh, kind of 
familiar with growing up his comedies of course resolve stuff we get an element of resolution within this one i like isis as a song i've always liked it as a song i've always thought it's been a bit overly long and so i think my uh, attention span clearly hasn't uh, allowed me to sort of arrive at any necessarily kind of conclusive idea about what it's all about i don't know if i'm alone there mark please uh, enlighten me <laughs> <laughs> I think you're in a minority, Rich, on that one, I would, oh, I would okay. say. Is it not a shaggy dog story? What do we think? Well, I was interested that you did bring in the Shakespeare links on this one, because I guess the one thing we can say is it, this narrative is is one of the, the absolute archetypes of uh, of narrative, isn't it? What's that book that someone wrote a few years ago when they said there's only seven stories or whatever it whatever it's supposed to be? You know what I mean? And they're all just endlessly recycled as different yeah, plot yeah. lines. But this is one of them, isn't it? The hero going away from home and family, experiencing something and coming back. And um, yeah, within that kind of archetype, I think you're right. It is a shaggy dog story. Because it's not quite a quest narrative, is it? I mean, it sort of is, but it plays fast and loose with kind of generic conventions, I suppose. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And Another thing it plays fast and loose with is the um, the Egyptian theme, isn't it? So obviously you've got the name of the song and you've got that kind of link to the legends about Isis and the, you know, the regeneration, you know, the dead body, the cycling, the returning, all that kind of stuff. But one of the things I was interested to discover reading about it this time is that a lot of it could be seen as being South American as well. So obviously you've got the 5th of May reference and the, the, the pyramids being in ice might relate to the kind of Andean pyramids rather than the Egyptian pyramids, which is an interesting thought. So we're not, well, let's put it this way. It's not placed, it's not situated in Egypt in any kind of way, is it? This is um, no, no. This is, this is something that's playful. It's not a, it's not a, a literal representation in any way. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I've got a great deal to add uh, there, mate, to what you've just said. But what I would kind of talk about is the performance here, which I uh, I find you know pretty captivating, I suppose. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the things about this record is, again, we're, we're in the space where we're, we're going to be saying that so many of the performances are, are incredibly strong. But even within that context, this is a highlight. I agree. And the thing that really leaps out here is um, the theatricality of it. And you really see that with the performances on Rolling Thunder, of course, later, where he's just inhabiting the song, isn't he? But even on record, I think you get that that sense. And we can't talk about the song without mentioning his phrasing. I mean, this is absolutely just core Bob Dylan, isn't it? Outrageous, you know, uh, well, I guess. The way he just takes those everyday phrases and just twists them into something completely beyond the ken of uh, of a normal performer is, is astonishing and so yeah i think the, the the way in which he delivers this song is incredibly powerful and i think that gives weight to the argument that people have made over the years that this was a deeply personal song for him at the time we talked about the way in which uh, you know blood on the tracks reflected his marital troubles and this is all well documented but at this at this particular time we we're, we're in that space where perhaps reconciliation was on the cards and you can see this song as a as a kind of elliptical tale that, that that brings that home. A lot more going on, of course, but I think the, the the sheer power he brings to it does suggest there's perhaps some truth in that. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I mean, you are absolutely right in as much as a lot of people have covered this song, and uh, a lot of people probably uh, have done it justice, but no one 
has sung it like Bob Dylan. I mean, it's that that thing about the phrasing is just astonishing. I mean, when it comes to phrasing, I think you've got Dylan and you've got Frank Sinatra, really, who are just able to phrase in a way that is so well no one can copy it really can they you can you can come close but i don't think anyone's ever ever managed to kind of capture that same kind of magic really i don't think it's worth going through this necessarily in order i mean i don't think there's much to say about mozambique allegedly it was a game between him and levy <laughs> to see who could come up with the most rhymes for eek as in mozambique um so let's move on to one more cup of coffee because i think this is amazing and i probably think this might be probably maybe might be um my favorite bob dylan vocal on this record i mean there are a few claims to that really in, in terms of like some of the best vocals maybe of his career really but i love this i love the fact that he kind of makes his voice sound like a violin almost i mean there's something a bit flamenco-y about the way that he delivers on this I mean it just sounds completely out of this doesn't sound like western rock circa 1976 does it really and I love it for that I also think that we can perhaps make a, a kind of Shakespearean link here albeit fairly loosely but this to me just sounds like a kind of blazon almost it's almost redolent Shakespearean wise of the sonnets some, certainly something like sonnet 138 sonnet 18 for example I mean this idea of praising the kind of narrator is praising the the female figure the your breath is sweet your eyes are like two jewels in the sky I mean it's just that's timeless isn't it your back is straight your hair is smooth on the pillow where you lie that you could almost go back to anything after Chaucer, really, and that kind of would fit in that. Um, you could go through the Romantics, for example, and it would work. And then I always think that the the later lines sort of feel a little bit like outtakes from Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, um, that your daddy, he's an outlaw and a wanderer by trade. He'll teach you how to pick and choose and how to throw the blade. I mean, it's just... It's glorious, isn't it, really? It's so kind of uh, mysterious and um, outlaw-like. I, I love it. And and so the kind of link, I suppose, what I'm trying to say here is I desperately try and crowbar um, a link to, to Shakespearean. Is, is it, I suppose it's that sort of timeless quality, really. It, it, to me, kind of reminds me of the sonnets. I don't know whether you think I'm way off the mark there, Mark, but... Um, <laughs> I see what you did there That's... yeah nice eh? like, it's not only Shakespeare and Bob Dylan that can play with words like that you see <laughs> <laughs> well this it is a gorgeous lyric you're right and beautifully delivered and of course supposedly this song was inspired by the holiday he had in France where he where <laughs> depending on on the account you believe he was he was basically living with the gypsies for weeks or he just attended a party i, I don't know the truth is probably somewhere in between but, i reckon uh, he was in like a cabin on euro <laughs> or something like that like, in, a, in a caravan like and he wanted to kind of think okay we better better make this uh <laughs> better make this sound a little bit more interesting before i pop off down the bingo and have my mule freak that kind of thing <laughs> Hey, don't be knocking the mule freak mate that's uh... hey I'm, I'm a big fan of mule freak that's uh <laughs> Um, but yeah, so you're right. It, and regardless of um, the provenance of, uh, of that, you've got that influence for sure, haven't you? And um, that's one of the things about this record. He does have such a range of uh, vocal styles, the melodic range for sure, the way, what he does with his voice on this song, as you say, the power of stuff like Hurricane, 
tenderness in Osister. And that whatever whatever he's doing on ISIS, I don't know, I don't know how you describe that, but it certainly works. So that's one of the things that I think really strikes home about this record again is just the way in which he's 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 performing at the top of his game. And I agree with you. This is one of the songs that is a very strong example of that. I guess the other thing is this is the song probably where that kind of mystical element that that runs through so much of this record really comes to the fore. And you've got this sort of you've got these these several themes, haven't you, running through the record. Um you've got these these older mythological, legendary kind of images, I suppose, or tropes from those older stories that just sort of dropped in and placed throughout the record. But you've also got this kind of very conscious mythologization of of contemporary events. I mean, I think Hurricane's in that vein, really, isn't it? Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we're going to be coming on to songs that that are very much like that as well later. So yeah, I think this song actually, in a way, sort of captures a lot of what makes this record great all in the, all in this one track for me. And I do remember when I first heard the record, this was the one that really leapt out at me and made me think, wow, yeah, I want I want a piece of this. This is this is this yeah. is good stuff. Well I mean and it's right, it kicks off with it. It's got great bass playing, that melodic bass playing in it as well that kind of acts almost like a melody line really it's uh and and i think that that grabs you straight away i mean well while we're talking in terms of the quality of vocals i mean it's probably worth mentioning oh sister as well really um because this i mean it's a beautiful song i think you've got more thoughts about this than i i probably have but i mean this this falls into that timeless category as well doesn't it and i mean you could kind of endlessly debate who this is supposedly about. And I mean, I know that this was quite a live highlight as well, wasn't it? But I mean, what, what are your thoughts, mate, on the, on O Sister? Yeah, I mean, famously, uh, a lot of people thought it was about Joan Baez, including yeah. Joan Baez, apparently. So you can take that or leave it, I suppose. But with so many of these sort of stories, you don't need that context to appreciate it, do you? I, I do think it's the vocal highlight of the album. But Dylan's great, but... Emily Harris is just on another dimension, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, I love Emily Harris and I love the all of the stuff that she did with Graham Parsons. And I don't think, I mean, it, it's almost like it's it, it's so different, really, what she's doing um, here, because, of course, her and Graham Parsons' voice is just moulded together so perfectly. But I think that she sort of meets Bob Dylan somewhere in the middle and it just, it's got that magic quality that harmony singing at its very best has, where it just raises both performances to something almost a bit transcendental, really. And I think you've definitely got that um, happening on this. Was this the one where there was, um, where she wasn't happy with it, mate? Yeah, according to Rob, uh, Rob's account, it was, wasn't it? Um, And she wanted to re-record it, but... I don't know. I've read a couple of different versions of this. One of the the problems was that because of the way they'd recorded it, you had the the bleeding from the the, yeah. the, the shared mic. Um, but wasn't there's also the lovely story, which I really hope is true, that she couldn't replicate it without looking at Bob Dylan while she was singing because his phrasing was so idiosyncratic. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I love the la- the the latter of those. I mean, it'd be wonderful if that were true, wouldn't it? And I, I think it's quite plausible as well, really, because. We talked earlier, didn't we, about the fact that this was all recorded live. It was all kind of capturing that moment. And so I think her the idea of her repeating that, um, you can't kind of, lightning doesn't strike the same place twice, does it? If we're 
going on with the lightning in the bottle metaphor and maybe running out of a bit of steam with it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, do you know what? I think I think it's worth talking about some of the some of the others on here. I know we're kind of going through some of these in in chronological order, but I mean we can't not talk about Joey, can we? Really? I once a very long time ago nicked a line went, uh, from this about a clam bar, and it was when I was recording with a punk band, and I got into an argument with the producer because he said, well, "What's what's a clam bar?" Like, and and I really don't have much of a clue what a clam bar is now, uh, but. I said, well, you know, it's good enough for Bob Dylan, so clearly it's good enough uh, for this very, very low-fi, low-budget recording that we're doing here. But I loved this when I first heard it. I thought, what a wonderful thing, you know, he's kind of celebrating the downtrodden. He's creating this kind of modern-day parable. He's creating this kind of Robin Hood, Jesse James, Billy the Kid kind of figure. It's all mystical and magical. It, I, I'd been, when I first heard this, I'd, been listening to quite a lot of Woody Guthrie and this is very much like Pretty Boy Floyd it's kind of the celebration as the outlaw who really deep down is a good egg it's just that society doesn't get him kind of thing and uh, I think it's magnificent and I was totally kind of bowled over and taken away by the romance of this and then it turns out that um, Joey Gallo was just a horrendous crook really wasn't he I mean and like a full-on mobster and yeah a tall story, I think, Mr. Wells. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. And it's 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 so strange, isn't it? Because it's it's not just that the the verses are, are constructed in the way you described, and they do create this uh, modern Robin Hood story um, very effectively. You can also kind of hear affection in, in Dylan's delivery, can't you? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, sorry to butt in here, but the, the thing about this as well is Joey Gallo was, I don't know if he was still alive or in jail, or but this was not a long time ago. It's not like he's myth, mythologising like a Wild West character. This was someone who was not even, I mean, absolutely in living memory, but very recent memory as well, really. Yeah, exactly. And that's what made it so annoying for, for so many people. <laughs> Uh, and you can see why. Um, who was it? Was it Lester Bangs who wrote the famous kind of takedown of it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and he he pulled no punches with that, did he? He was just kind of, uh, yeah. But, I mean, it is, there is a real affection. It's like, oh, you know, and then uh, having to say one last goodbye to the son. No, of course he wasn't in jail. That's absolute nonsense. He's been gunned down in the bloody <laughs> In a clam bar, exactly. You clam see. Bar. What an idiot. Right, okay. So, um, yes, Anyway, notwithstanding my poor memory, um, it, it hadn't happened very long before, had it, this this incident where he kind of stumbles out into the streets of Little Italy. And um, and, and the media, it wasn't even like there was a, a great section of the media that was fighting, saying, oh, you know, remember Joey Gallo, he's ever such a nice fella. I think Bob Dylan was kind of uh, swimming against the current here. <laughs> <laughs> He was, and um, and and it's the centerpiece of the album, really, isn't it? In terms of its length and the way, I mean, would it have kicked off the second side if it was um, if it was on the LP? I think it or, would have, yeah, because there wouldn't have been room. Surely, wouldn't have been room for it on the first side after Hurricane being on there. Yeah, yeah, and and I always found it a bit odd because it's it, what it does very very well is it does hold your attention all the way through the length of the song. Yeah, um, and that's 
the songwriting there is he's demonstrating a very deep skill isn't he to, to, to keep this ballad going over all those verses i think it's 12 verses and i think there's a there's almost a technical progression there from lily rosemary and the jack of hearts because i think i think he does it at least as successfully on this song kind of probably probably better in a way yeah um and he's in that tradition of uh, the uh, the historical ballad as you say but yeah so strange that he would pick that that character to, to do it. Um, and I, I think that even as on my first listen, I, I was kind of a little bit taken aback that he would, he would want to spend so much time on this, this subject. And as I say, it does, it does work because there's just so much of it that's so arresting and so much of his delivery is so perfectly pitched, but it's a very, very odd song. And yeah, it's one. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what, what summarizes the way I feel about it. It's it's one that as soon as it comes on, whenever I'm listening to Desire, I'm tempted to hit skip because I know I've got ten minutes of this coming up, and I don't really like Joey Galler, so why do I wouldn't listen to it? But I never actually do skip it because once you're into it, it has it has a life of its own, doesn't it? It does. It hooks you in. I mean, it's. I was going to suggest previously a kind of Shakespearean link with this, the idea of the way that Shakespeare obviously all of his histories and stuff like that were about people now really or or then I should say kind of contemporary to him but he almost always veiled well I say almost always uh, frequently he veiled these in in kind of layers of allegory and and um and didn't make his subject matter necessarily quite so obvious but there is I mean Bob Dylan is just giving us Joey Gallo here isn't he I mean there's no <laughs> There's no um, sort of sense that he's representing someone else with this. I, I don't think this is just a, it's a straightforward ballad, isn't it? Albeit a very good ballad, but just it's the subject matter that I think is very, very strange. But you say that, I mean, Dylan himself must have been conscious that what he was doing was this kind of uh, mythologization. There's no sense in which he's trying to actually give us reportage on the guy's life. I've just been listening to the, one of the latest uh, is it Rolling Bob podcast actually? Oh, yeah. And they're talking about Roll on John and the way in which they the, that is not really a kind of commentary on Bob Dylan's friendship with John Lennon because there probably wasn't one, but it's a it's a mythologization of John Lennon's life and his position within I suppose a mythologization of the position of this idea of John Lennon in the popular culture. And I think that's what he's doing here, actually. doesn't explain why he'd, why he'd want to do it, but I think that's what's going on. Oh, I think, you know, I, that's, as with so many um, Bob Dylan songs and ideas, the hand that he's showing you isn't necessarily the card that he's playing, if that, may, if, if that as, a, as a metaphor kind of makes sense. And I think that this is very much... Well, time tends to bear out his wisdom, doesn't it, really? So, like, stuff that he's put out, you know, I've done Under the Red Sky, perhaps not quite so much, but there's plenty of uh, things that he's released that haven't been necessarily well-accepted or well-received at the time that people kind of, over time, accept. And I suppose this is one now. I mean, people don't remember who Joey Gallo is to the same extent as, as they'd have been aware of him when it was released, do they? And so it becomes just this kind of great ballad, therefore. And it's exactly the same process with uh, Reuben Carter, isn't it? I think, though, uh, Rich, just to segue into the next song, one of the things about this record is that you've got this real cinematic quality, haven't you, on a lot of the songs. And Joey definitely has that. 
yeah. the next one we're going to talk about really has it in spades. And I just wanted to bring up before I forget one of my favorite quotes about this album, which was from Allen Ginsberg, who called the songs cameo movies. And that's just such a lovely way of expressing it, isn't it? And I think Joey works in that way brilliantly. But Romance in Durango is another one that works in exactly the same way, isn't it? Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, yeah, Joey is your, your kind of godfather part one and part two and everything else thrown in there, really, isn't it? But Romance in Durango, I mean, I think this is astonishingly um, cinematic. I mean, I think back to books and albums, I suppose, as with many teenagers of our generation, were ways of kind of escaping the I suppose the mundane world that you felt you were living in. I think in fairness, all adolescents, even those that grow up on Venice beach, think that they're growing up <laughs> in a tedious place in the world because that's the nature of what you're at at that age, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the line in this hot chili peppers in the blistering sun. I mean, I could write endless essays about this one. I mean, I was at the time when I first heard this album, I was living in the Fens in the, in sort of East Anglia and, um, it's pan flat, so tedious landscape wise that kind of the the clouds take on a whole new meaning almost. It's one of those kind of things. And just that line is so evocative of somewhere else, somewhere far away, somewhere blisteringly hot and um, interesting and colourful and vibrant and all of those kind of things. I mean, and then, of course, you've got sold my guitar to the baker's son for a few crumbs and a place to hide. And I think there are many adolescents that wish at some stage to run away, reinvent themselves. And it's that kind of romantic nature. It's the kind of Jack Kerouac sort of thing, isn't it? The open road and the freedom and this, that and the other. And and that I bought into that entirely when I first listened to this one. I mean, this is just one of these... <laughs> You know, the fact that it was recorded in a multi-million dollar studio complex had meant nothing to me, is that it's the kind of essence of the song here, really. I also think there's a there's a kind of a roguish kind of aspect to this as well. I mean, I always think the verse, uh, then the Padre will recite the prayers of old. That line, I will wear new boots and an earring of gold. You will shine with diamonds in your wedding gown. That earring of gold has always reminded me, there's the Chandos portrait of Shakespeare, which is the one that makes him look a bit more piratical, if that's the word, the pirate-like one with the kind of, you know, he's the sort of rakish thespian with his earring and he looks a bit kind of edgy, I suppose. Um mm. for- for, for what those portraits kind of show. And that's the kind of sense that I have with this one. I mean, I just think it's brilliant. I just think it is an astonishing song and it absolutely plays out what Alan Ginsberg said. I mean, this is a movie, this is probably multiple movies. It's like a travelogue and all sorts of things thrown into one. Yeah, and of course it has those links quite directly to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, which was filmed around Durango, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was, it was, yeah. But yeah, and Clinton Halen mentions this in the uh, in, in his book, that he thinks that the, the way in which the narrative unfolds, where it's almost at the moment of death of the narrator, that he calls back to the uh, the incident, the crime, the murder, whatever you want to call it, um, that's precipitated his flight. He thinks that is Bob Dylan nodding to the fact that that's how Peckinpah wanted to end this film um, with this framing device of Pat Garrett being assassinated in the future that was was obviously savagely cut, as we as we discussed at some length when yeah. we, uh, we talked about. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't think that quite works, actually, because it's not 
quite the same thing, is it? The, the reflection of that is is during the travelogue, not the moment of death. But anyway, it's a lovely thought. I'd, I'd like to think that was true. Yeah, I'd sort of go along with that. I mean, it's uh, I quite like the idea that it suddenly gets sort of almost removed from being about Durango and actually far more centred on the process of filmmaking, which uh, <laughs> the, the only issue with that is I think it takes away a little bit of the romance. It's... Uh, if you're thinking about it being a, a kind of critique of the editing suite, as it were. But um, yeah. Well, just one, the last thing I must say on this, I'm always incredibly jealous of people I hear and, and read talking about Bob Dylan and they'll say things like, you know, oh, I was sat behind the, the stage in, in Manchester in 66. And, you know, or, uh, you know, when I used to work as a delivery driver, I, I turned up at the studio and, and uh, handed him his, his uh, manuscript or whatever. And of course, I don't have any any such anecdotes as that. Um, but the closest I come is that I was at Hammersmith in 2003 when he, he played this song to uh, universal acclaim. And it, it, it was one of the most astonishing atmospheres I've ever been in at a concert. So that's my only claim to fame as a, as a Bob Dylan fan. But uh, it was a very special night. And I, he certainly didn't play it again for years after that. He didn't play it on the rest of the tour. I don't know if he's played it in more recent times. But yeah, a, a, a genuinely wonderful performance that you can find if you're, if you're so inclined online. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, that's a nice memory. Hey, um, I remember seeing Bruce Springsteen. I know that I'm going off on a tangent now, but at the Emirates Stadium, I think 07, 08, maybe. And um, he, it was almost like it was a set list that was curated to my kind of exact kind of tastes. And I think sometimes you go to gigs, which are just magical like that. And so to have seen Dylan do that and play a song like that must have been astonishing. But um, yeah. Um, okay, so, I mean, Black Diamond Bay, I've talked a little bit about this kind of idea of the mysterious sort of continent hopping jet set kind of person or persona that was kind of present on some of those Blood on the Tracks songs, the, the sort of idea of an almost underworld figure, I suppose, that kind of almost almost like a sort of spy. And I think that this Black Diamond Bay works like that. I mean, there's a lot of people that have talked about it being based on the novel Victory by Joseph Conrad. And of course, there are references that you can take from that. I really like it. I really like it for the sort of seedy kind of um, mystery that surrounds it. And again, as with all the songs on this, it's like a hell of a performance as well, isn't it? Oh, for sure. And I, uh, I've, I've got to say here that this song is, a, is one that I've always considered a bit of a guilty pleasure. If you remember when we talked about Blonde on Blonde, I sort of mentioned that Stuck Inside a Mobile, I, I really always enjoyed, but I wasn't quite sure whether it actually had any substance to it. Um, and I do feel the same way with this song. I love the way it just sort of fades in. I do love that reversal at the end that, that's so famous. I love the, the the lyrics to it. I love the crazy rhymes in it. And I, I just generally love the performance. It's just such a great upbeat song to listen to, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Despite the kind of downbeat... <laughs> The rather downbeat theme but get, despite all that i'm not quite convinced that it is a great song i mean so much of it does rely on that reversal at the end because all the little vignettes in it i don't think they really actually stack up to anything very much so i love it i do enjoy it but i'm not quite sure it's really all that but i don't know what's your what are your thoughts Richard? i well I, I sort of go along with that i mean i love it for reasons that aren't really to do with it being a kind of complete cohesive narrative, I suppose, because I love how exotic it all sounds. And I think all those little vignettes contribute to that. 
I mean, I think the narration is sort of omniscient narration, but I suppose it's also a little bit like we talked about the deconstructed sort of painting methods that he was using on um, on Blood on the Tracks. And I think there's there's aspects of that in this really as well, aren't there? So, um, yeah, I think a guilty pleasure is quite a nice way of describing this one, though, because I'd go along with that. I think it is. It's sort of just a song that I I certainly wouldn't skip forward if this one came on. Uh, but I probably wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what it was about either. <laughs> <laughs> how how peculiar for a Bob Dylan song. <laughs> but I guess you're right. I mean, it does do a really great job of capturing that exoticism. Jacques Levy's quote on it was that he thinks the hotel's run by Humphrey Bogart. And you, you, you get that, don't you? Absolutely. It would be Everything very, about it. Yeah, it would be a very, very smoky kind of play. It'd be like one of the bars in um, in Casablanca, wouldn't it? It'd be that kind of like uh, sort of lawless or just outside of the boundaries of any kind of place where the law was really kind of upheld, shall we say. Um, exactly, yeah. A place with an endless capacity for sort of danger and vice and stuff like that, but very exciting because of it. Well, the gambling room is straight out of Casablanca, isn't it? It is, it is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So actually, we're, we're sort of coming on to um, the last song here, aren't we? Which is Sarah. And one thing that I just wanted to pick up on while we're talking about Black Diamond Bay, which sort of relates to Sarah as well in a, in a weird sort of way. The main character in Black Diamond Bay. I always, whenever I listen to the song, this is this is one of the things that makes it a guilty pleasure for me. I always want her to be a complex, interesting, well-drawn character that sort of holds the song together. But I just don't think she is. I, when when I, when I actually listen to it, she sort of just goes up the stairs and down the stairs, and then stands on the balcony. And there's not really a lot more to it than that. And I I kind of I kind of I'm always slightly disappoints me a little bit. But the reason I'm mentioning it now is because one of the the things that that came up uh, when this was reviewed, um, I think it was Dave Marsh in in Rolling Stone. He had a few interesting things to say in his uh, in his review. But perhaps the most striking was that he thought this album represented a complete step change in Bob Dylan's portrayal of, of women on in song and on record. And he talks about how previously Dylan had been in that kind of quite misogynistic space of the kind of Madonna and whore dichotomy yeah, yeah. in a lot of his songs. And this one moved moved things on quite a lot. And he speculates that maybe that is the influence of the collaboration with, with Jacques Levy. And linking it on to Sarah, I thought, well, actually, there might be something in that. Because, of course, he does have the line, Sweet Virgin Angel, in Sarah, which wasn't co-written with Jacks, and some of those more, perhaps more complex, more nuanced uh, sketches of the female characters were co-writes. So there may well be something in that, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure that I agree because, as I say, it's the flight Black Diamond Bay. I think we're still in the realm of caricature, and even with something like ISIS, you know, where we're still seeing this kind of very mysterious female character, which is almost kind of leaning towards that Madonna archetype. And the role is, is as a foil to the, the narrative that the, the male protagonist is, is, is taking, right? So I'm not sure, but what, I'm, what I am sure of is that the characterization of women in this album is a long, long way from something like One of Us Must Know. So we are in a different space, but I don't think I quite buy the idea that it's a step change. And we see that in later records that we're back into the sort of borderline misogynistic portrayals, aren't we? And later yeah. on, in fact, even on the next record. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's interesting, isn't it, that women in this album or on this album are kind of, they're, 
they're sort of stuck, I suppose, in terms of portrayals. We're certainly not in the spinal tap sort of uh, way of looking at things, which, of course, was kind of, I suppose, the rather misogynistic way that most mid-70s bloke bands would have viewed women. But they're still quite liminal. Even in a song like uh, Black Diamond Bay, I think that the, the female character is quite liminal within this. And I think that that's quite interesting. And so it doesn't kind of maybe tie in entirely with the idea that this is this moment when there's a paradigm shift almost with how Bob Dylan presents gender. But I mean, Sarah is something entirely different, though, isn't it? And so I think with that in mind, we should leap in and, and, and look at his portrayal of the, the female persona on, uh, on Sarah, because this arguably is the moment, really, I suppose not even arguably, when he kind of drops the mask and it's all from his own point of view. Would you go along with that, Mark? I'm really not sure whether I would or not, Rich. I think there's obviously that angle to it, um, and, and supposedly... Uh, the night he recorded it, Sarah was on the other side of the screen in the control room, wasn't she? Uh, and the, the electricity was palpable. But uh, for me, when I was listening back to it this time, I, I did wonder. Um, first of all, you've got that very cinematic feel of the first few verses, haven't you? Those little scenes on the beach and in the bar. We're still very much in that sort of uh, scene building space, aren't we? But then we get that gorgeous verse. It starts with the Methodist bells and the Chelsea Hotel. And that, to me, is very much in the uh, the spirit of the 60s self-mythologization, the sort of stuff that the Beatles used to do all the time. And Dylan shies away from that always, but he comes to it here. And I think, to me, that's the thing about this song which is most striking, not the revelations about his private life or naming his wife. It's almost as though he's taking something which is obviously factually accurate and, and not coated in uh, imagery or allegory, but he's using it to spin this mythology, which in a way is self-mythologizing. I feel like it's it's that that's, that's what's really going on. And I thought it was quite interesting to compare that with the sort of stuff that John Lennon was doing around this time, when it seemed like he couldn't write a song without naming Yoko. But in those songs, I think they are much more confessional, they're much more soul-bearing, they're much more somebody trying to be artistically honest, if you want to use that word, and just just get across what he's feeling without any filter. And I don't think that's what Dylan's doing at all. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those where we'll never know. I mean, we've talked about masks, etc. I think the fact that it's called Sarah suggests that it's this kind of straightforward uh, ditty, homage almost to her. But we never really know with Dylan, do we? As we've discussed on many occasions. And I think one of the things about, I mean, there have been, I don't even think he was... Did he even write Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands in the Chelsea Hotel? I'm not sure if he did or not. Mm, that might mm. that, that might just be a minor detail kind of thing. But it's this idea. It's We've talked quite a lot about how modernist he is in terms of his kind of approaching of lyrics and poetry, etc. And I think that this is quite... You've got a revisionist history, really. This is him revising what is sort of ostensibly his own history, but kind of presenting it in a way that he wants to. I mean, it's a bit, you could see this as being quite saccharine. I'm not sure about the the, the use of the word kelp, for example. That's, that's <laughs> I remember listening to that for the first time thinking he's going to rhyme it with something. He's going to, and then it, it's quite a long rhyme scheme. Mm, but, mm. but the other thing then is, I think about this sort of Shakespearean link and you think, well, could could Shakespeare have written something like this for Anne Hathaway? And 
we'll never know. He might have penned her letters or this, that and the other. Who knows, really? But the the lines from the will, you know, the famous kind of old, and I bequeath my second best bed kind of thing, which, of course, mm. the, the, the first bed was the one for the guests and the second one was always the sort of marital bed and so it's almost like it's the what's the word here this kind of like dropping in references the other person is going to understand and I wonder in the same way that Shakespeare's will was clearly a sort of in joke I suppose with his with with his wife okay are there aspects of this that are maybe a regular listener is going to think oh isn't that lovely a little twee kind of holiday with kelp and the uh the you know, kids in their pails in the sand and this that and the other and then in reality there are references sort of words to the wise that she would understand in a different way to everyone else it might be that it might be nothing to do with that i don't know do you like it yeah that's a really good question i i think for me that that final verse saves it and carries it yeah um and as with all the songs on the album the, the performance and the arrangement works but overall i i find it i i don't find i don't find the bulk of it affecting but as i say it's that final verse that, that just about pushes it over the line for me yeah i mean yeah the it, it, for an album that's so strong i think it's maybe misplaced really especially when you think about some of the songs that weren't included on it i think it it feels it's unfair to say that it goes out with a whimper rather than a bang but it kind of it you mentioned it being pushed over the line. It feels almost like it's maybe not limping towards the line, but walking quite sedately uh, towards the line by the end of this. And all of the power and the, everything that's that sort of preceded it just kind of deflates a little bit as this kind of song unravels, I think. I think that's really fair because you get to Romance in Durango and the record's flying, isn't it? And then yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we talked already about Black Diamond Bay. I think it's it's got its limitations, but... You're not you're not upset, are you? When that starts fading in, it's it's still a great a great moment. Yeah. And then you're right. It does it does. I always tend to think when I'm listening to the record, oh yeah, Sarah's on now. Yeah. And it's just yeah, like yeah. okay, yeah. But that's fine. But it feels like not... it's shoved on the end, doesn't it? It doesn't feel yes. like that kind of coherent part. It's just like you've got all of this kind of exotic, mystical stuff, and then you've got. I know, like two weeks in Torremolinos with the kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd go along with that. All right, mate. Well, well, I think we're probably about about ready to hit up last thoughts on this one. Then, I mean, um, shall I start off? Yeah, I, go for it. I, I, I love it as an album. I, I mean, I know we've just kind of disparaged Sarah, etc. But I love it as a record. I think it's fantastic. It's as I said previously. I think it's a great Bob Dylan record, which in many respects doesn't sound like a Bob Dylan record or doesn't kind of like a stereotypical Bob Dylan record. And I think the inclusion of Hurricane on Dazed and Confused, the soundtrack, it sort of goes along with that, really. But I love it. And I, as I've said, I, I can never, I could never understand why when I was talking about this album to people who you know, knew about Bob Dylan, didn't sort of think didn't seem to know about this as a record. It didn't seem to kind of hold this up there with the with the very best. And I think it's one of his great records. I really do. So that's pretty much me over and out. But what are you reckoning then, mate, with uh, your last thoughts? I agree. I, I put this definitely on the same sort of level as records like Bringing It All Back Home. I think it's absolutely of that quality. And I, and I love it just on a personal level, as we said at the start. 
I did think it was interesting to compare it with something like bringing it all back home, though, because if you were if you were going to play Family Fortunes, uh, <laughs> naming Bob Dylan songs, yeah, you, if you if you picked a song off bringing it all back home, you'd have a good chance of scoring points, wouldn't you? But you wouldn't on uh, on Desire. I mean, Hurricane is a, is a well known song, I think, still, and obviously the film has has helped that in kind of a wider culture. Yeah. And, you know, for Bob Dylan fans, stuff like Sarah and Isis is pretty foundational. But we're not talking about those transcendental songs that, that made his reputation here, are we? We're, you know, this isn't the times they are changing or Mr. Tambourine Man or like a Rolling Stone. No one's taking these songs and putting them on a greatest hits album. But I say that they may have done by now. There have been so many of them, but <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I think that it's an odd album because of that. I think it's it's got that quality, but it lacks those kind of career defining songs in, in, a, in a way but despite that I think it would be a very good album to give someone as a as a primer for Bob Dylan even though it lacks those really famous well-known songs as a hook yeah it does have so much else going on it's got his kind of return to the political activism it's got his you know so many different styles of fantastic singing on it you know um, it's got his those songs which are layered in in imagery that you can't quite catch hold of. It's got those cinematic songs. And so I, I, I think it, it's, a, it's an album which I would, I would give to people now. I've always said before that bringing it all back home would be the record I'd give somebody if I was going to say, this is why you should listen to Bob Dylan. But now I think it might be desire. And uh, the thing that's backing this up for me is that, as I've mentioned before, I, I tend to listen to these records while I'm doing the dishes uh, of an evening. And uh, you know, family members you're, come in and out. Mo- you're a modern man, Mark. What can you say? <laughs> like, it's this. <laughs> but you know, when, when when family members were coming in during the self-portrait weeks, I, I wasn't getting a favourable reaction. But I was getting very favourable reactions to Hurricane, Isis, Black Diamond Bay this time. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think this is one that I would I would give to non-believers to, to try and hook them in in future for sure. That almost sounds rather spiritual, talking about non-believers. I love the way that you've segued from um, family fortunes into that. So I don't think we can, we're not going to top that now, are we? Thank you very much indeed for listening, as always. We are on Twitter. If you look and search at Dylan American, please do post any comments. Please do post any questions. We'd be delighted to, uh, to try and answer them or integrate them into next show. And we're very, very grateful for all of the comments and suggestions that you guys out there have posted to date. Please join us next time when we will be discussing... Hard Rain. Thank you. Bye.